Hello. In the discussions on this podcast, I try to find an angle that relates to leadership. This is partly to acknowledge the pod sponsors, the Splendid Forward Institute. But today we're going right to the heart of the matter, talking to two people from the Forward Institute about the nature of leadership and the habits they think effective and ethical leaders need to cultivate. After all, is there any social phenomenon more spoken about and less agreed upon than leadership? Some people talk about leadership potential as if the capacity to lead well is a simple combination of innate ability and training, like mastering a sport or learning to play a musical instrument. Others say leadership can never be separated from the context in which it operates, which is why people who meet one challenge well can fall flat on their face when facing another. Some people believe leadership is the most important dimension of organisational success. Others find the whole concept with its overtones of hierarchy and control problematic. But perhaps one thing most of us can agree upon is that if leaders are to lead well, they need to have some idea of what leadership is, what it should be, and what it must try to avoid becoming. You're listening to Forward Vision with Matthew Taylor, the podcast to help you think differently, feel differently, and lead differently. That's Forward Vision with your host, Matthew Taylor. I'm delighted to be joined by Jonathan Gosling, who's a highly distinguished writer, thinker, scholar, advisor on leadership. Jonathan is also a faculty member of the Forward Institute's Responsible Leadership Programme. And I've also been joined by Ruth Turner, who's a director at the Forward Institute and has a long and varied record of being a leader and supporting leaders. They are joint authors of a new paper, Character, Company and Context, a Practical Framework for Leaders Under Pressure, which has just been published in the Colombo Business Journal. And full disclosure, I should acknowledge that I am married to one of them. And even fuller disclosure that I'm an organisational leader myself. So, Jonathan, Ruth, welcome. Thanks, Matthew. Thank you, Matthew. Now, leadership is sometimes something which happens to us accidentally. But generally speaking, leaders are people who have been on a career path which has led to leadership. So I'm going to start with a really basic question. I'll direct it to you, Jonathan. Why do you think people want to become leaders? Oh, that's a great question. And and I've looked a bit into what I've called the pleasures of power, asking the question, what are the sort of visceral pleasures that people get from having power? And I think it varies a lot amongst people. For some, it's a reassurance of their own sense of self and identity that they can act on the world. They can be seen as in some ways, potent, effective, or looked up to. But for others, I think they're more focused on the influence they can have and the agendas they want to pursue. And for some, they enjoy being in the mix of power and influence. It feels like the right kind of environment for them. Perhaps it's thrilling, but it's also in some ways exciting and stimulating, challenging, something they enjoy. I think the motives are many. So, Ruth, I'm kind of reminded of 
In positive psychology, they say that our three core motivations are mastery, autonomy and connectedness. And I guess on the face of it, leadership offers you all of these, doesn't it? I mean, it's an expression of your mastery of the world that you've become a leader. You probably more than anybody else should have autonomy in the organization because after all, you have the most power and also it gives you connectedness. Everybody wants to be around the leader. So it feels fairly straightforward. But Jonathan's mentioned power and that's a big part of your paper you talk about the problem of power. So why do you think people become leaders? And then if they do it, as Jonathan says, because they want power, why is power then a problem? I think it's very interesting. And as Jonathan says, there's a variety of motivations. And probably most people will have some of those motivations or an aspect of all of those motivations in them, even if one of them is much stronger. When you look at leadership trends, there's two huge trends at the moment, I think, aren't there? Everybody's talking about purpose and everybody's talking about culture. And I think that for me, I kind of became an accidental leader, I think, and probably didn't want to be one because I was, and strangely enough, still am very, very shy. So the leadership of others was always a bit that kind of came reluctantly with the package for me. So I would say, first of all, purpose the first time I became a leader, it's because I felt that there was a gap, something needed to be done that wasn't being done around homelessness and realized very, very quickly I couldn't do that without other people. So with it came the obligation to then lead those people and to learn how to do it. And I would say I'm a much later convert to culture. I now think it's incredibly important, but for me, it was always a secondary thing. I'm kind of noticing maybe a distinction here between leadership as a means to an end. That's what you're describing, Ruth, that you in a way had to become a leader because that was a way to achieve change. And then maybe a different kind of inspiration, which is people who just feel driven. I suspect there's a difference between you and I here. I think that I just always wanted to be in charge and I've been in charge of various organizations. And I'm wondering whether what do you think, Ruth? Do you think that probably leaders who become leaders in order to achieve something are less subject to the temptations of power than those like me who just want to be in control? <laughs> well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I'm not sure I have always wanted to tell other people what to do, but I've always not wanted to be told what to do. And so perhaps leadership is an opportunity not to be told what to do by other people, or at least quite so much. But I think this is one of the things that Jonathan and I wanted to explore in this paper. Almost irrespective of your motivations for becoming a leader and almost irrespective of your personal characteristics or inclinations or virtue, some things happen to almost everybody when they get seniority and positional power. And being aware of that is possibly the first safeguard that a leader has for not abusing that power. And so those are the kind of things that we look at in the paper. You know, what's likely to happen to you when you are in power and what's likely to happen to the relationships that you have with the people who you have around you advising you. And knowing that, how can you be a little bit deliberate about the things and the people that you have around with you to help draw out the better aspects of you? So, Jonathan, do you agree that in a sense, the very first lesson we should take from your paper is that when you get power, and of course, power is elusive, but nevertheless, when you get formal power, 
the first thing you need to do is to recognize it will change you. It would be great if that was on the top of one's mind, but perhaps more often the sort of thrill of the speed can be overwhelming. I know there was some research on university vice chancellors and they found that there was one universal thing they all did when newly appointed was buy a more powerful car. (laughs) (laughs) Excitement of the foot on the accelerator, perhaps. I think the point that Ruth's really referring to is that however virtuous and self-controlled and self-aware a person is when they come into leadership and as the sort of pressures pile on, it's just impossible to remain clear-minded, all-seeing, omnipotent and omniscient without the help of other people around you. And I think the point we're really trying to address in this paper is that this is something that leaders really can pay attention to. You can make sure you have wise and accessible counsel. There's more to it than simply saying that. There's really thinking carefully about how that's constituted and how you keep it available to you and you available to hear that counsel. Yes, and I I think at the heart of the paper is almost a truism, but the fact that it's a truism doesn't mean that we don't need to be reminded of it constantly, which is the importance of reflection, that when you are a leader, you are subject to all sorts of pressures. Everything is very intense. And so the capacity to be able to reflect, and what is it that you need in order to be able to continue to reflect on what you're doing, that's a theme that runs through the whole paper. And you talk about three elements of that in a sense, to reflect on your character, to reflect on the company that you keep, and to reflect on the context in which you operate. So let's look at those. And let's start with character. And I guess I've got a kind of personal question on that. I mean, do we think the thing about character is, in a sense, the challenge is to become the character we need to be? Or is it, and I prefer this second explanation, partly because I've never been able to really change my deeply flawed character, that actually the task is to recognize the character that you are, and as it were, to build around you the right context to ensure that the good parts of your character can help and the problematic parts of your character are minimized. So Ruth, if you go into leadership and you know you have particular traits, you said you're shy, for example, should you be working on being less shy? Or should you be saying to people around, you know, I'm quite shy. So actually, the way I'm going to lead is going to be putting other people out there a bit more. So is it to change ourselves? Or is it as it were to adapt our environment? Well, it's an interesting question. I'd say probably I would incline a bit more to the latter. I mean, all of us, I think, want to grow. All of us want to improve aspects of who we are and how we are. And one of the people who we work with, Ed Brooks at Oxford University, who's spending a long time looking at character, talks about characters not being a kind of fixed, look, this is just who I am, take me or leave me. He talks about it, about a way of people flourishing and being their best. So I think there is that aspect that it's no use to anyone if I'm too shy to actually do my job. So of course, I have to grow into it. But actually, one of the things that I talk to leaders about is it never really works to try to be someone else. And the nature of being a fully rounded human being is that three-dimensional objects cast shadows. 
So everybody is going to have the strengths and they're also going to have shadows. There's going to be less desirable bits of their character, less desirable bits of their behavior. And I was talking in a different context with one of our team a few weeks ago about how I needed to get much better at doing X. And she said, no, you don't, Ruth, you need to butt out because actually there's already people around you who are much better at doing X. And what makes you think that you can be the ubiquitous person, all things to all people? And that gave me pause for thought because I thought, actually, that's right, really. We're always sort of focused on this idea of becoming the very best version of ourselves. And maybe we need to think about what's the contribution that I can make in this situation and who else do I need? So Ruth there, Jonathan, benefited from somebody around her who could tell her the truth, which takes us to the second element of this, which is company. Let's explore the different elements of this. But in a sense, the starting point is the importance of having people around you who can help you to be a good leader. Unpack this notion of company, which is in the title of your paper, Jonathan. So... At the straightforward level, we're referring to literally the people who are around you and who have access to you and who you listen to. These are sometimes advisors, deputies, heads of subunits, sometimes maybe board members, advisors, counselors, but also people in your system who have power and influence from a different base to your own. This is referred to in the literature often as subalterns and the effects of subaltern leadership. So, for example, although the dominant elites and people with access to power in a company might mostly be I don't know, white men, there may well be likely to be a bunch of people with rather different identities and different experiences and give voice to perspectives and interests that are somewhat askance to the center of the concerns of the leader and those immediately around them. And those slightly marginal voices can actually be speaking some very important truths, giving some important information and pointing to some necessary struggles. So by company, we mean, as well as those immediately around the leader, we mean the plurality of interests and concerns and voices expressing those that are at least in principle available to a leader to hear if they want to. And Ruth, in the paper, there's a wonderful story, which is, as it were, undertook your own social experiment in relation to this notion that in order to kind of understand an organization as a leader, you need to recognize that you see it from a very particular angle because you're sitting on top of it. And if you look at it from a different angle and you listen to people looking at it from a different angle, it can feel quite different. But you went through an experience where you did both. Share that with us. Yeah, it's true. And so I was the chief exec of an organization and I kind of invented the organization as many sort of founders do. So I'd written every strategy to start with, every job description, I'd recruited everyone and everybody in the end, if they didn't report into me, I still read all of the reports. So I think I had a fairly good claim for saying that I knew the organization. And then I went on maternity leave. And while I was on maternity leave, I decided that I would hand over forever to my absolutely brilliant deputy because that's what she wanted too. So I came back part-time 
and I reported in to people I had previously been in charge of. And I literally moved my chair, of course. I went and sat at a desk in the middle of the office. And so I had physically, but also structurally, a very different perspective on the organization, I thought, inside out. And I realized how wrong I was about so many people. So there was somebody who I just always thought was a really delightful conversationalist, but did nothing but chit-chat to other people. And so was pleasant, but not very effective. And I realized she was actually the glue who held the organization together and who worked out exactly how to translate and finesse a message between different layers of seniority. And somebody who I thought was amazing as a problem solver and was always coming to me with stories about the problems that they'd fixed in the organization, I realized they were kind of instigating some of those problems in the first place in order to show the people above them that he was a problem solver. So I got quite an unusual glimpse and it was pretty humbling, I have to say. Yeah, so you have in the paper a set of kind of inhibitors, things which inhibit people from this practice of reflection on character and company and context. And one of those is restricted perspectives. And that's where you tell that story, Ruth, about the fact that you, when you lead, you inevitably have one particular perspective and you need to search out other perspectives. A second inhibitor is barriers to communication. And Jonathan, I mean, as a leader myself, I completely agree with what you're saying, but how does one go about it? My own chair, I can't think exactly the phrase he uses, but he uses the phrase that is something like, for a leader, a feather is like an anvil. When you're a leader and you talk to somebody and you say something you think is quite mild, it has a huge impact on them. So how do you have authentic conversations with people, particularly within your organization when you're a leader? That's a great question. And, and I think a very difficult one because it's not just down to you, of course, it's down to both sort of realistic concerns that other people might have about your power and influence, but also their fantastical assumptions about you, which are probably partly cultural and partly inherited from their own experiences of authority through their lives. And most of us grow up with good and worrying, anxiety-provoking experiences with authority figures. This often gets sort of excited in those kinds of confrontations with the boss. So to some extent, I think the leader is consigned to a kind of ignorance or to relating through a veil of all this noise, really, which is one of the reasons that, again, the company around them may actually help. And it's not always the case that authenticity is really what people most want from their leaders in spite of what they say, that you don't necessarily want to know about your leader's worries and anxieties especially if they might be unsettling and then exciting your own. So I do think it's a sort of built-in problem and inhibition and something that leaders and the people around them have to figure out ways of solving. There's another problem with it that perhaps this comes back to the first point you made about the kind of desire to lead in the first place. It's often driven by a kind of conviction that in your own mind you can see and feel how things really ought to be, and that you look out on the rest of the world as something to be molded and steered, shaped into that inner vision. And a lot of the energy and drive that people put into leadership and into trying to get the organization right, as they might see it, is driven, in a sense, by a kind of ignorance or a semi-decision to 
ignore what is and focus on what could be. And that, of course, inhibits really giving value and weight to what is, especially if it doesn't fit with that inner sense. I want you, Ruth, to reflect on that, but also to reflect on that by talking about another bit of practice which the Ford Institute undertakes. So we've recognized that it can be difficult to listen to people who work for you when you're a leader. So one of the things that's useful is to talk to leaders in other types of organizations, in other settings. And one of the reasons that is useful, which relates to the point you just made, Jonathan, is that you can sometimes see your own frailties and flaws reflected in others, including that kind of sense that you have a particular kind of insight into the world or the, in a sense, another kind of aspect of leadership that you are uniquely challenged in the leadership tasks that you've got. When you talk to other leaders, you're slightly disabused of this kind of slight tendency to think you're unique. So that's an important part of what you do at Forward, isn't it? On the first thing, I just wanted to add, because everything that Jonathan said about the inhibitors to leaders sort of finding the truth is true. But can I tell you something that's even more common? And that's actually the inhibitor of getting really frank views from peers and colleagues. When I talk to quite a lot of leaders, I'm not talking about chief execs now, but I'm talking about very senior leaders at different levels. And when I talk to them when they're worried about raising something difficult in their organization, it's almost never that they're worried they're going to get sacked or punished. They worry about being embarrassed or being diminished in peers' eyes or about coming across as being really self-righteous or a nuisance. And there's a kind of heroism about speaking truth to power. So, yeah, of course, it's scary but everybody will clap you and you can tell your friends and they'll be really proud of you and say, go, give it to them even harder next time. And you'll get that kind of support internally as well. But if you go to people and say, do you know what? I raised an ethical query that I've got with another manager who's on my level. People are more likely to look at you askance and think, well, who are you to do that? So I think finding ways to get over peer pressure and embarrassment at work is actually really, really important. Because in my view, that's a much more common inhibitor than the worry that you're going to be formally punished or sacked. So that's just to add that dimension to it. Interesting. So, but then talk about the second part, which is the importance of talking to other leaders in different contexts. So I think it really helps. And I think it really helps for two reasons. One is you mentioned about how it helps us get over that idea of the exceptionalism of our own situation because we feel kind of like special and uniquely troubled by something. And there is a consolation in that. But then when we talk to somebody in a different sector and change the names, change the job titles, change the literal circumstances, and you find that other people are going through the same, it can be a really fantastic source of wisdom. But the other reason is we talked about reflection before, and let's be really realistic about this. I've been in a leadership position a lot and close to senior leaders a lot. And they are unbelievably busy. The idea that they can take hours and hours at a time to go for a wander in the field, reading Shakespeare and looking at the flowers and taking a really big step back is just nonsense. It's not going to happen. So you have to find ways of people reflecting in ways that are commensurate with the pace and the demands of the job. And so one of the ways in which people can reflect is not by getting away from their organizational situation, but sometimes by getting closer to it. 
and using other people and other people's experience as a mirror. So Jonathan talks about this as when we put people from different organizations together, they get a window into someone else's world where they can get that wisdom, but they have a mirror held up to their own. And that kind of lateral thinking can be an incredibly useful tool for leaders. So we're drawing towards the close of our conversation. I want to bring two concepts together. So we've talked about character. We've talked about company. Your third C is context. But also in your article, Jonathan, where you talk about the inhibitors to this kind of reflexive practice, you talk about stress and overload. And I think that these two things are related to each other in a sense, that sometimes as leaders, I think we almost manufacture contexts of stress and overload because we feel that is what is expected of us as leaders. And we can actually become disorientated when we're not in that kind of context of high pressure. So there's something about how we as leaders try to generate the environments which prove our leadership metal, as it were. Now, you argue in the article that it's really important to recognize that you aren't able to reflect on your character, company, and context if you're completely knackered. You're trying to do too much. And so an awareness of the context in which you're operating and an awareness of what it is you need to do to just make the job manageable is really important. I'm interested in, Jonathan, you've worked with so many leaders. How do you go about that? And I'll just tell you how I go about it because it is completely pathetic. I have basically empowered my executive assistant to be the boss of me. That's the truth. I'm incapable of managing my diary. I'm incapable of not overloading myself in order to prove how indispensable I am to the world. And so I've said to my executive assistant, I will not be effective if I run my own diary. I'll not be effective if I'm allowed to say yes to every invitation I get. And I've given her as much as I possibly can the power to tell me what to do and to make sure that my diary is balanced. Now, it works, but there must be, Jonathan, better ways of doing it than that. Hmm. Sounds like that's pretty effective to me. One thing is, of course, your own addiction to being important, to being needed, being everywhere and all of those things. And that you have to fight like any addiction. But of course, it's not something you can go cold turkey on if you still want to do the job. So there's sort of a sense of self-control around that or or have some help in getting that self-control from your assistant seems like a a sensible thing to do. There's some other things about whether the kind of feedback you get from being really busy all the time, of course, gets in the way of your awareness of other things. So I think one very important step to take is to schedule in some very different kinds of activities and very different kinds of conversations to engage in. You know, there's no point going to an art gallery and spending an hour wandering around looking at pictures if actually you're on your phone all the time or even in your mind rehearsing the next board meeting or something. You need to perhaps be there with someone who's going to engage you in really looking at the pictures and thinking about them. Or, of course, some kind of sport or, or other leisure activity can perform the same functions. And one of the activities that we built into the Ford Institute it's persuading people to take time to sit alongside people elsewhere in their own organization or some another organization entirely, but a completely different kind of job to sort of experience what it's like to be a citizen of this world from a very different perspective. And that, I think, has an advantage of satisfying a sort of desire to be busy and engaged and looking and active, but obliges you to 
do it from such a different perspective that it's kind of refreshing and people always report coming back from that revived in some way from the activity. Ruth, what about you on this issue of stress and an overload? You know, as I say, I, I'm useless at this. And I know it's because I want to believe in my own dispensability and that whenever I have kind of downtime or free time or my diary is not full or someone doesn't want me to make a speech or whatever, I start to get neurotic and anxious. So how, how, how do I, you know, Jonathan's given some ideas, any thoughts you've got about how you break out of this kind of stress and overload trap, particularly because in your piece, what you argue really strongly is that if you are stressed and overloaded, you can't undertake the good practices that you describe. Matthew, I'm not sure any podcast is long enough to be able to deal adequately with your anxiety and neuroses. <laughs> if we're going to talk about what helps for leaders, I think one of the things that is really important is that they do recognise the context that they're in and that no matter how strong your character, no matter how amazing the people are that you have around you, there are some things which drive organisational logic that are going to impact how it is that you lead and what the experience is like for everyone else. So I was speaking to somebody the other day who was considering changing career and going from one organization to another. And some of what I wanted to get her to explore was, what is the business model that they've got? And logically, what kind of behaviors are they going to want to engender in you because of that business model? We worked a few years ago with an organization that looked really closely at their incentive system, for example, because they realized that it didn't matter how clear the chief exec was about the values, how strong the strategy was, and how much behavior change and cultural change they tried to do through the organization. Where they had an incentive system that was rewarding, financially rewarding, certain types of activities and certain types of results, that was going to drive behavior in a much stronger way than anything else. So I think sometimes it's really good idea to pay attention to the plumbing of an organization, if you like, to the mechanics of it, to the business model, as well as look at the behavioral aspects. Yeah, thank you. And I think I'd widen it from business model, actually, to kind of model of change. I think that, again, reflecting on my own leadership, that it's not financial incentives, but I'm one of these people who constantly talks about making an impact in the world. And so the danger, I think, for me with the people I work with and exhausting myself and more importantly, exhausting them is the sense of, well, there's always more impact we can achieve in the world. There's always more that we can do. Not being able to kind of set limits on what is a reasonable expectation of our impact in the world. So I know you work with the public sector and charitable third sector organizations. So it's also that, isn't it? It's about having some kind of realistic set of expectations about what can be achieved. I think it's always about being deeply realistic about it. And there is no one set of ambitions. There is no one way of being a leader that is the perfect way to be a leader. I think what is important is that sense of enough self-awareness, not self-obsession, but just enough self-awareness and just enough awareness of who it is you need around you, what the circumstances that you're in are likely to encourage you or discourage you from doing and try to, as best as possible, weave your way through that. Well, thank you, Ruth. Thank you, 
Jonathan, there was a comment that one of my guests made a few minutes ago that probably reveals to you which one of these people is married to me. Now, character, company, and context, a practical framework for leaders under pressure, I can recommend it. It's in the Colombo Business Journal. And if you want to find out more about the Ford Institute, then do look them up. They've got a good website and they do fantastic work. So as I say, I can recommend Ruth and Jonathan's article and the wider work of the Ford Institute. But I guess... If I wanted to emphasize one point that for me was kind of reinforced by reading their article is that the complexity of leadership, it means that the rules of thumb, the habits that we want to practice, they can't be too complex. They can't be too demanding. We simply can't deal with it. So for me, one of the things that it's important to do is to try to make sure that the way we think about change in the world aligns with the way we think about change in our organization, and even perhaps aligns with the way in which we think about change in ourselves, so that in all the domains in which we operate, the kind of habits and insights that we're trying to cultivate are being continuously reinforced, refined. Otherwise, I think the experience of leadership is so complex. There are so many bits of advice that we can end up overwhelmed by it. But anyway, if you are a leader, or if you want to become a leader, or if you want to advise people who are leaders, as I say, I think Ruth and Jonathan's article is a great place to start. Thanks for listening. And if you've enjoyed this edition of Forward Vision, please leave a rating or review in your podcast app. It really does make a difference. Thank you. The Forward Institute is a non-profit organisation with the mission of building a movement for responsible leadership. With a network of global business leaders, the Forward Institute facilitates cross-sector learning, creating space for challenging conversations and exploring the very real dilemmas leaders face. For more information, visit forward.institute.